just right. John Carter, like that could be anything. That could be about a lawyer in the South. That could be about a man salmon fishing in Yemen. That could be... <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster in San Diego, California. How was your 4th of July? It was good. Cassidy Robinson recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, it was fine. We celebrated down here in San Diego. Um, Our mutual friends, uh, Kate and Ashley, came and visited us. We hung out at the beach. Yeah, I don't know. It feels like a weird year to celebrate the 4th of July, but it always kind of feels like that anymore, so... Yeah, uh, I mean, for me, it was a paid day off. That's, I mean, literally, that's all, because I didn't do anything. Um, I Actually, I did go see our movie that we're reviewing this week, The Black Phone. Okay, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's been working out like this. Whole theater to myself. I'm loving it. All the kids are at Minions, all the adults are at Top Gun. I was at the Black Phone. I I understand, like, I, you know, don't want to be exposed to COVID and stuff, but I do feel like there's some movies that I'm like, yeah, this is great, all to myself. And then there's some movies where I want an audience, and generally, I want an audience with a spooky movie. Oh, okay. See, I would think that's one of the genres where it's... It's less of an issue. Um, no, because I'm afraid somebody, like, I'm, I don't know. It, I just, it's, it's, it's creepy when you're all by yourself in a theater sometimes. Um, before we move on to our, our reviews for The Black Phone and The Two Jakes, as well as our pre-review segment, the other thing I did over the weekend is I finally caught up with Bo Burnham's Inside Outtakes. Have you watched that yet? No, I haven't heard of that. So he released a separate hour just on YouTube. The inside is on Netflix. Uh, But uh, he released the outtakes, just like a compilation of odds and ends, stuff that didn't make it in. A few, um, like, fully produced songs. A lot of little, like, skits and bits. And then uh, a few, like, literal outtakes of him, like, setting something up and then, like, messing up halfway through, like, you know, bloopery type stuff. And it's kind of it's kind of put together in a similar fashion where it it's chronological. You sort of see the, you know, him breaking down as it goes, but it's not quite as emotionally punctuated. It's a lot more just, like, the frustration of getting a project done. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, it's pretty good. You know, I, I would say if you're a fan of Inside, it's worth seeing just for the the stuff, the songs that didn't make it in. Um, and there's a few, like, like he has, like, two or three more Jeffrey Bezos songs <laughs> that okay. uh, he didn't use. And there's a few, you know, like, one verse, one chorus, kind of, like, half, half thought kind of ideas. Uh and there's a lot of really catchy stuff on it. It's, but yeah, I would I would say it's not essential 
in the way that I think Inside is. Like, that is like a fully realized artistic statement. Whereas the Inside Outtakes is just like extra goodies. It's, you know, it's uh, special features kind of stuff. Gotcha. Okay. But it's only an hour long. And if you have an afternoon or whatever, um, it's totally worth watching if you were a fan of, of Inside. Okay, cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, a few, he released a couple of the songs individually as well on YouTube if you just want to watch those. I know there's one about him and his girlfriend's five-year anniversary that's pretty fun. It's like done in the style of like a Drake-type song. Okay. I can see why it didn't end up on Netflix. It feels more like a YouTube kind of thing than sure, Inside, yeah. which, like I said, is more of a fully realized artistic statement. Cool, cool. And certainly not as heavy, although not entirely not heavy. I was trying to think of a segment for this episode, and I was watching a uh, music podcast uh, kind of thing on YouTube, and they were talking about bad band names. And it kind of sparked my imagination as far as what are some horrible titles for movies? And... At first, I was kind of struggling to kind of come up with them without just thinking of sequels. Like Sequels are like often main offenders, um, but I didn't want to just go that route. So I kind of looked at a list, and then once I saw one or two that came out while I was working at a video store, then they started pouring out of me because I remembered. Yeah. I think I was in a peak era for terrible movie titles. Yeah, there's which is like bunch, 2008 uh, to 2012. Yeah, I uh, it was kind of hard for me to think of them at first, and then like once I thought of a couple, it, yeah, it was like the, sort of the floodgates opened. Yeah, and I was just like, yeah, that was a terrible name as well. And and a lot of the ones I saw on like the official lists, like you know from different mainstream blogs and stuff. I didn't think we're all that bad. Like, they would usually just be kind of long and clunky or, like, rhyme in a cheesy way. But, yeah, they're, like, the hottie or the naughty, I'm like, I mean, yeah, that's not a good name, but what else are you going to call that movie? And it's it's fine. I yeah, mean, I mean, it, it it's representative of what that movie is. So... It'll be interesting to see how we both approach this. I did ask our... Uh, Twitter people or uh, what for some of theirs. We've got a couple responses here. Thief says Edge of Tomorrow or Live Die Repeat. Uh, so Ooh. bad they named it twice. Well, the movie is actually great, unfortunately. Movie, yeah. Um, uh, but they never like <laughs> felt very confident about either of those names. So the DVD release was called Live Die Repeat. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow is what it was in theaters when it flopped. Yeah, and I I mean, I think that was a big part of why that movie flopped was it was like the marketing was kind of all over the place and then changing titles. Yeah. Because I think they changed it like halfway through its theatrical run. It was just very confusing and like, okay, what, like, okay. Right. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow is just pretty bland and generic. I actually think Live, Die, Repeat is fine. That's a fine name. I mean, it's not great but i i don't think that one's terrible i i think edge of tomorrow is pretty 
pretty blah, though. Right. And this was also the same summer or the same period of time when Oblivion came out, uh, the Joseph Kaczynski movie with uh, with Tom Cruise. And so he was in two sci-fi movies around the same time. And both of them had sort of nondescript titles. And it was hard to kind of... I. You know, the average moviegoer was probably just like, I don't know, like I've no, what, the, what I don't even know what's going on in either of these movies. Yeah, I know. It's just like Tom people, Cruise is doing shit or something. Yeah, uh, it, which again I think is kind of a shame that these movies came out together because I liked, I liked both of those movies. I liked Oblivion a lot. I liked. Uh, mm-hmm. They're both Lived worth watching. I think yeah. especially Edge of Tomorrow, which is what I choose to call it because that was the original title. Um, yeah, we don't we don't need to dead name that movie. It, it changed its name, and, and that's fine. It's <laughs> Lived I Repeat now. Okay, well, I like that one. I think that one's a slightly more clever, tighter script. Yeah. Um, Jeff Hawkins says, Ain't Them Body Saints, which is a bad one. Uh, bad title. I never saw the movie. I want to say ain't them body saints. Yes, this was David Lowry's one of his earlier movies. He later did The Green Knight and uh, The Ghost Story. Oh, okay. This okay. is one of his first movies. I will say it is a terrible movie name, mm-hmm. but not bad for a band name. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could see them being like a, a mid two thousands like metalcore act. Uh, I, well, I, I was thinking of like <laughs> uh, kind of like a, a sort of folk revival, like like something like Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats, like you know. Oh, okay. Or just well, kind of like shit kicker rock. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I could see that too. But I could also yeah see like sort of screamo <laughs> metalcore. <laughs> Yeah, stuff from, like, the mid-2000s. Decent band name, terrible movie name. All right. Uh, So we'll we'll go back and forth here with our official five, and then we'll rattle off any extras we have. But what did you have as one of yours? You can pick at random. Uh, Sure. I'll start with something we both saw very recently, and we even uh, talked about the name being so bad. Men. Uh, Terrible name. Uh, I agree. I think it hurt the movie significantly as far as uh, box office goes. I yeah, yeah, it just it's so on the nose. It's so to the point where the movie mansplains itself to you, which I don't know if that's if that's done intentionally. Maybe that's clever, but just the name sucks. It's not a great name. It's not provocative. It, it's just there. It is. That's the thesis. Yeah, that was on my list as well. Um, so I'm glad you said it. Here's a, here's the movie when I was looking at lists that kind of like opened the floodgates where it's like, okay, I don't need to look at these anymore. I know exactly what, I, what I'm looking for now. Salmon fishing in Yemen. Okay. I actually don't hate that. I almost put the slamming salmon. Here's the thing. As long as there is a scene in that movie where there is salmon fishing and they are in Yemen, I'm like, at least you know what you're getting. I, I do believe that the, that those things happen. This was a uh, drama starring Ewan McGregor. I think Lassie Hallstrom directed it, but it was called Salmon Fishing in Yemen, so nobody saw it. I, I don't know. 
Wait. Something about the word salmon is just very unappealing. I mean, it's very specific. You know what they're fishing for. Uh, no, this is pretty cheesy. I don't know. that I I wouldn't go see this movie. I didn't see this movie. Um, yeah, doesn't sound like an exciting time. Right. Yeah, imagine being eight years old. Not that this should be the test for anything, really, but imagine being eight years old <laughs> and you're like, oh, mom, I, I want to go see Spawn. And it's like, well, we're going to see salmon fishing in Yemen instead. Like, <laughs> how pissed are you going to be? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What's your next one? Uh, My next one is, ooh, I've got some, got some good ones. Which one should I pick? I'm going to say John Carter. Uh, Disney's John Carter. Uh, yeah, which was originally supposed to be called John Carter of Mars, but I believe they did not release that because under that title because of a mo- movie that's on my list that had the same name, had the word Mars in it, and uh, did not do well. Um, and are, was, are you talking about Mission to Mars? No, I'm not. We'll get to it, but. Uh, Yeah, so the the brilliant minds at Disney decided that Mars was the problem. So instead, they just released a movie called John Carter. And unless you're like a pulp novel enthusiast, you have no the fuck idea who that is. And exactly. And it's just John Carter on and like the posters. They didn't really, you know, it it was just sort of him in like chains on Mars. But. You couldn't necessarily tell it was Mars. It's just like the ground was red, but that could be super contrasted desert. You know, it just was like, yeah, what is this movie? Uh, And, you know, I think that movie, I don't think is terrible. Um, It's not great. It's not, you know, it it was never going to light the world on fire. But John Carter as a property, I think, has plenty of potential but yeah, literally distilling it down to the two most boring words in like the entire book, <laughs> the dude's name in uh, John Carter. Like how generic of a name is that? Yeah, uh, ag- agreed. Again, like if you were just using it as branding, then I would understand because I think. Well, I you know if you're calling John a movie. Carter- if you're calling a movie Conan, you don't really need to call it anything else. But yeah, unfor- but Conan's a, is like a it's well known name, and it it's not John Carter. It's not like the most common English name, and Carter. <laughs> it's so, you know John Carter of Mars is interesting because it's like oh that's a normal dude name, but he's on Mars. <laughs> Just right. John Carter, like, that could be anything. That could be about a lawyer in the South. That could be about a man salmon fishing in Yemen. That could be <laughs> a, a, a guy who drives a boat. Like, what the fuck does John Carter tell us about the movie? Nothing. Right. Absolutely. So I did want some representation of the phenomena post The Dark Knight, where people had to start throwing in the word dark to sell a movie. Um, okay. All into right. I, I was going to give an honorable mention to anything with the word rise in the title. So right. I, didn't have to I almost it, had but... dark Knight rises, but I, I actually, Same. I actually think of all of those, 
And I don't love that one either because it annoys me that they just was like, okay, let's take a movie that did very well and just put Rises after it. Yeah, I fucking hate that, but it also didn't quite make my list. Right. And it also kind of sounds like Dark Knight Returns. Like, I kind of get it. But I think the worst offender from this era, as far as the name goes, is Star Trek Into Darkness. Okay, yeah. It's so ham-fisted. It's the first and I believe the only uh, Star Trek film that goes against the tradition of Star Trek colon subtitle. Instead, they try and create a sentence. No, I think. uh, Or, you know, with a verb. Isn't it Star Trek colon into darkness? I don't know. No, it's Star Trek into darkness. We are Star Trekking into the darkness. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. I mean, it is It is a terrible name. <laughs> um, and I wasn't even a hater of the movie. I know that that movie like, got a lot of shit and whatever from like the true believers, but I thought it was good enough. Um, yeah, it's a decent action movie. Like, I, I, Yes, I get why people had issues with that movie, but I, yeah, the movie's fine. Name yeah. is terrible. The, the name is super clunky and... Makes no sense. And you can really only excuse it by describing this weird thing that happened for like two or three years where everything was, you know, Thor the Dark World or Star Trek in the Darkness or The Dark Knight Rises or, you know, The Darkening. Yeah, I used to joke that there was going to be a movie that was just going to be called Darkness Rises Rising into Darkness. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's a very ridiculous uh, trend. Uh, Okay, I'm going to go with Quantum of Solace. I really like the Daniel Craig, James Bond movies. Uh Um, I even rewatched all of them recently. um, And Quantum of Solace is, is largely kind of the black sheep of that stretch uh, of the franchise yeah um because casino royale was i think it's the best james bond movie still to this day um it's it to me it's the highest high um and then quantum of solace is you know a lot of people were like well what what is this bullshit um uh and the name is terrible it is terrible name quantum of solace quantum of solace it sounds like you know, it sounds like a weird sci-fi space thing. Yeah, if it was Star it's, Trek Quantum of Solace, that would make more sense than, than a, than a uh, James Bond film. Yeah, because normally James Bond, you know, is like cause some kind of pun. It's some it's some kind of wordplay or it's it's just, you know, a, a more or it's just more clear you know uh, uh, yeah. casino royale is fantastic great name uh no time to die a little generic but fine um quantum of solace just sucks it's awkward it does not roll off the tongue it does not capture the imagination in any way it is just a terrible name uh and the movie's not as bad as i remember it being i i remember it being like pretty boring and and rewatching it, i was like eh, this is fine this is you know um this is whatever but uh the name just it still sticks out to me as Ugh. yeah yeah 
Okay, uh, here's another one from when I was at the video store. Did you hear about the Morgans? <laughs> uh, no, what about the Morgans? Exactly. Um, that is the name of a movie, believe it or not. A Sarah Jessica Parker romantic comedy. Did you hear about the Morgans? I guess if you have a terrible name, throw a question mark at the end of it so that people have to rent it to find out what the deal is with the Morgans. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty boring. And also just annoyingly cheeky. Do you yeah. feel like it's in like a, a writer's room? Like someone threw that out as a joke and they're like, hey, that's not that bad, though. And the guy's like, no, actually, it's terrible. Let's try and think of something else. But they just <laughs> kept coming back to, did you hear about the Morgans? And like, I guess that's what we're calling this. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's a production name that just stuck. Yeah. All right. This name is so bad. I mean, I still occasionally use it as a punchline. Uh, Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire. Yeah. What the fuck? What the <laughs> actual fuck? It, literally anything you could call it would be better than that. Just call it Precious. I mean, everyone Just call did. It push. Hmm. Just call it... No, everybody called it Precious based on the novel Push by Sapphire. That was the name. Call it Push by Sapphire. Call it literally anything fucking else. It is so long and unnecessary. And it sounds like... It makes Sapphire sound like a fucking douche. Uh, <laughs> it just... Everything about that sucks. Precious... Based on the novel Push by Sapphire. Right. I mean, I, you can just, the title tells so many stories about why, like, again, like, the issues with the naming process. You knew at some point they were like, well, we should call it Push because that's the book that everyone knows and it did really well. And some, that's some, another generic. like group were like, well, let's. Let's call it Precious because that's the name of the main character and, like, it's kind of a play on words. And, like, the compromise ended up being Precious based on the novel Push by Sapphire. Yeah. Just, it, it, is, it takes forever just to say. It's exhausting. Precious based on the novel Push by Sapphire. And it just sounds pretentious as hell. It just... Like, nothing about that is appealing. Right. Uh, my last official one that I wanted to talk about, and like I said, we can rattle off the rest, is a classic bad sequel name uh, that also spawned a lot of jokes and parodies. I still know what you did last summer. You know what? I actually don't hate this one. Really? Just because it's I like... They went for it. Like, it was already a long, weird name anyway. Yeah, and, and I I don't know. It's kind of cute. It's kind of like, you, you know what I mean? I don't know. It's it's genre it, conscious because yeah. in that, like, Kevin Williamson sort of way. Yeah, I, like, under, it, I understand. And I, I think the jokes about it were, were excuse enough for the title to exist. Like, the, uh, it was before there was... Before people just started saying electric boogaloo or, um, yeah, 
or uh, based on the novel Push by Sapphire after everything, you would say, you know, I still know what you did the summer before last. Or yeah, yeah. wasn't it just super long? It well, might have been a family guy one that was, uh, wow, this summer is a whole lot like last summer. What with the killing and all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's cheesy, but I think it's kind of campy and fun in the way that 90s slashers movies are. So yeah. to me, this is an I don't know. I, I, I get it. I get it's. It's silly, but I don't think it's bad, personally. I mean, it's, it is bad. It's objectively bad, but but it's kind of leaning into it. it it's There's a sort of a knowingness to it, and I, I guess that's the excuse, but um, I don't know. I, I think it's better it still than funny? I Know What You Did Last Summer too. Like, well, what are, what are you going to call that? If it depends now, because... I never saw I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, but if it ends up being a different killer who also knew what they were doing last summer, then yeah, no, I, then I, it could work as like a I Still Know What You Did Last Summer T-O-O. I, I, yeah. Uh, what about... <laughs> but that kind of gives away the ending. It, <laughs> what about just calling it Next Summer? Uh, but here's that, the thing, that's confusing because you'd be like, next summer, we're releasing next summer. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I know I think I know what you did last summer is a worse name than I still know what you did last summer. Yeah. <laughs> we might need I to... know what you did last summer almost sounds like it could be a sequel. True. True. We need we need some uh, feedback on this. We, you know, send us. Yeah. Is. Hit us up on the DMs or on Twitter at MacGuffin Podcast. Is I still know what you did last summer, good or bad? Maybe I'll throw a poll. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Yeah. I have one more official one uh, that you knew it was going to come up. You knew it had to come up. Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Yeah. Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. It's so bad for so many reasons all they had to do was call the movie batman superman but it it was batman v superman not versus so that became the name Mm -hmm. and blank versus blank also generally sucks as a title and dawn of justice Ugh. i think it's the dawn of justice that really breaks it um, because yeah, I mean, Batman versus Superman is cheesy and it makes it sound like a wrestling match, but I mean, basically that's what that movie was. Sure. I mean, but that, well, no, that movie would be way more fun if that's all it was. Uh, well, that's what if, the last if, 40 minutes was, but sure. It, make it a 40 minute movie and I might not hate it with the <laughs> fiery rage that I hate that movie. Um, but it's not even Batman versus Superman. It's Batman v Superman. Mm-hmm. Like that's how people referred to it. So it's Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. It's just a fucking dog dick of a title. <laughs> I think it hurts a little worse because the movie's so bad. But um, I, I didn't put this only because I'm. I just. I. I guess I don't even think about it enough to. Regard it in any kind of way. 
To me, it's the cherry on the shit Sunday that is that movie. Yeah, well, it was the first thing when they were coming up with it. Like they're like, "This is what the movie's going to be called." I was like, "Oh, that's not good." Yeah, it's Batman v Superman, but also let's let them know that this is kicking off our DCEU, so we have to say, you know, we have to indicate that it's how the Justice League forms for some reason. Ugh. Ugh. Like, it just right. makes me But is sick. it any it worse? Is it any worse than, like, Captain America First Avenger? That's kind of clunky. Yeah. That's, that, yeah, that's kind of clunky, but... It is way worse than that. There's so much going on in that title alone yeah. that you know it's going to be a fucking mess of a movie. Well, it, it, yeah, it just sounds like a lot of marketing happening is what it sounds like. Um, okay, here's uh, the ones I did not put on the list. A lot of these, again, were in that time period where I was working at the video store. Titles I just remember seeing a lot when I was putting stuff away. Mm -hmm. How do you know? Another oh, nondescript yeah. romantic comedy. This is uh, Ooh, yeah, Paul Rudd, Jack Nicholson joint. We built a zoo. <laughs> oh god damn it! How did I not? <laughs> how did I not put that on my list? Oh my god! That for me that was like uh, again much like Precious, based on the novel pushed by Sapphire. Yeah, that was like a fucking punchline for me for a long time. Ah, oh, I'm so mad I forgot that one. <laughs> Uh, there be dragons. I kind of like that one. That was piratey and fun. <laughs> and then the one that I was mentioning actually interfered with John Carter of Mars being the official title. Mars oh, needs yeah. moms. <laughs> Mars needs moms was a movie that flopped so bad that they took Mars out of the title for John Carter of Mars. Wow, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. And okay, here's my. Oh, I'm, I got one left. Oh, okay, okay. This is a uh, Keenan Thompson joint called Wieners. <laughs> no, that's another one that I'm gonna. I'll veto. That's kind of great. <laughs> Wieners. <laughs> he, he sells hot dogs. That's the thing. Yeah, no, I get it. I know immediately what that movie's about. I'm, I'm, I'm not mad at it. <laughs> uh, okay. For my honorable mentions, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give a special shout out just to Jordan Peele. Uh, nope and Us, uh, I think are terrible names. I think Nope um, is worse. Us is a is ambiguous, but I think there's a there's there's kind of some mystery where I want to like figure it out. Whereas Nope is a little jokey to me, but I'll reserve complete judgment for when I see the movie. Fair, and I think that's why it's it was it's just an honorable mention and not fully on my list because mm -hmm. um, I I don't know yet, but I'm not into that as a name. The bubble, shout out to the again another terrible movie we watched this year. Yeah, um, uh, with a terrible name, just call it fucking Cliff B Six, please. Um, <laughs> uh, Terminator Genesis. Genesize. Genesize, yeah. Genesize. Uh, this wouldn't be on the list if they hadn't chosen to obnoxiously change the spelling to <laughs> Genesis for no reason. Right. Um, otherwise, it's just, you know, generic Bad prequel name, fodder. yeah. Uh, Ballistics X versus Sever. Yeah, uh, I remember that one. Um, yeah, it's just so ridiculous and... and 
it has a uh, $5 DVD bin written all over it, but that's, Absolutely. you know. Uh, it knows what think, it is. Yeah. Uh, and then the final one, um, uh, it goes back to our category of rising in darkness. Uh, the Rise of Skywalker. Um, terrible, uh, terrible name. The fact that it was called The Rise of Skywalker... So many years after Rise had fallen out of fashion in titles. Um, yeah. And it has nothing to do with the movie. It is just a terrible, terrible name. I, uh, I, I always, I mean, if you were to ask me what's the name of episode nine, I could say it immediately, but I didn't think of it as being part of the whole yeah, package that- of things that were wrong with that movie that is an accomplishment for outdoing a bad star wars titles such as attack of the clones or the phantom menace both of those are terrible oh um, I, don't, I don't have a problem with either of those names i think they, they sound oh, like I star have, wars names whatever no i i absolutely have a problem with both of those um but the rise of skywalker fuck you <laughs> just fuck you and kind of fuck that movie but whatever Right. All right. Yeah, so if anybody can think of any other terrible movie titles that we have forgotten here, um, there are many. Um, you're welcome to tweet us as well or you know, mention in the comments of our Instagram post, at MacGuffinPod. But let's go ahead and start talking about the movie of the week. This is a movie we went and saw. Over the weekend, the horror film The Black Phone. And this was directed by Scott Derrickson, who also did Sinister. And uh, more recently, the first Doctor Strange film. I believe he was also a producer on the recent Doctor Strange film as well. Um. And this brings him back to his horror roots in uh, Bloomhouse production. And this is based on a short story by Joe Hill, son of Stephen King. This takes place in 1978. It's about uh, a family in a small town. A boy named Finney, played by Mason Thames, and Gwen, played by Madeline McGraw, preteens. And uh, there's been a string of missing children cases and uh, murder cases. And there's been this ghostly figure that some people have talked about taking these children that the newspapers have called the Grabber, um, who in this film is played by Ethan Hawke. Finney is getting bullied at school and the kid who's sort of been his protector goes missing and shortly after Finney goes missing as well and finds himself awake in a basement dungeon with nothing but a cot that's been bolted to the floor access to a very small bathroom um nobody can hear him he seems to be in some sort of like uh, you know sound protected uh, cement room and occasionally is visited by the grabber himself, Ethan Hawke's character, who is wearing these distorted, devilish mask uh, contraptions on his face. Another thing that's in his room is a broken black phone. 
a rotary phone that uh, shouldn't work because it's not connected to anything. But occasionally, Finney believes he's getting these phone calls. And it's a little hard to tell. He is kind of like, you know, traumatized and starving and a lot of things. Um, But he's getting these phone calls by the other missing children, the voices of the missing children, who help give him little clues of ways he might be able to escape. Outside of this scenario, the sister has premonitions where she dreams about, you know, other clues about the children who've gone missing and the grabber and where they might be. Um, And she's hoping that with the cooperation of the police, if they believe her, she can use these premonitions or prayers or whatever she believes them to be um, to find Finney before he's eventually killed or gone missing forever. So that's sort of the, the setup. And the reason I brought up, you know, the, uh, the Stephen King connection, like I said, a lot of the way this plays out, even though this is a little bit more structured and like a classic, uh, thrillery sort of way, there's a lot of Stephen King tropes here that Joe Hill seemed to adopted from his father. We got the uh, psychotic bullies. We got the psychic children. We've got the cursed towns with ghouls with balloons. And, uh, yeah, I mean, did any of that occur to you while you were watching it? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Like it, uh, 70s, you know, that, like 78. Joe Hill, I think, is an interesting writer um, because he, I mean, he definitely, like, he openly references his his dad's work all the time. And they've um, collaborated and, and, a lot, too. It's not like it's something he is afraid of admitting or that he's shy about or, you know. I mean, his work is different in some regards and in others, not. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. Uh, but, yes, the Stephen King parallels are are definitely there uh but in a way it's kind of interesting because in the 70s he would have been the age of finney whereas stephen king you know would have been older he would have been an adult by then so i do think that's kind of interesting is i i think he can maybe put himself into that perspective of a child maybe a little bit more you know, especially one with a dad who has substance abuse issues and, and things like that. Right, which is, um, again, another another trope we've seen in Stephen King um, novels. The abusive fathers or the dr- drunken fathers or, mo- or mothers. So, uh, but, you know, usually when Stephen is, King wrote about being a kid, he, he often, you know, set stuff in the 50s because that's when he was a kid. Yeah, yeah. But I, I get... Exactly. And my, my point is... Um, that even though these are, you know, tropes that they, that both writers deal with quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, it, uh, I think, you know, maybe a slightly different perspective than a Stephen King one would have been. Um, so I do think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, also I'm not mad at it. I mean, I like Stephen King for a reason. I like Joe Hill's writing for a reason. It's, it's horror genre stuff but with elements of sci-fi and with elements of other things going on and and i like that take on it i like that i I think there's something about stephen king and joe hill and 
and just their style of horror that just particularly connects with me. Well, it's very relatable. I think, you know, one of the things that I noticed about this movie is how long they set up this scenario before it kicks into the plot stuff. Um, mm-hmm. We really get to know this family and their, you know, their issues and, yeah, well, and their we, histories. And, and really, yeah, and all this stuff with the grabber is just kind of going on in the background. It, you know, it's it's something that they know about, but... Yeah, there's, uh, there's, a, leg- there's a legitimate coming-of-age story within all of this, and that mm-hmm. only works if you ha- if you do all the legwork at the beginning to set up these characters. Um, and I think, you know, especially out of, like, Bloomhouse, it'd be easy for a lesser storyteller or a lesser script to kind of cut to the chase quicker and just be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, he's bullied, whatever. Let's get in that basement as soon as possible. And I think if yeah. it wasn't Scott Derrickson, who already, you know, has a resume now and a bit of a pedigree mm-hmm. that uh, I could easily see a producer telling them to cut the first 20 pages. Yeah. Yeah. This is, it, this is a, uh, this is patient. This is a patient thriller of a horror. It's yeah. Not- and it's not overly long. I mean, it's, I think it's, we still come under two hours. It paces itself and it takes its time, but it uses the runtime. Well, I, and I think that's, I think short stories tend to adapt a little bit better as movies for this very reason. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's there's stuff that they can fill in, but it, it never, it doesn't usually feel like they can't get the whole story in, you know? Yeah. Um, it, whereas, you know, when you're adapting a fucking 800-page novel, it can be a little bit harder, or 1,200-page novel, or whatever, you know? Um, something like it, you can break up over two movies and still leave stuff out. Right. So I, I think there's also something nice about the simplicity of, of this movie. It's, you know, for the most part, it's a, it's a kid in a dire situation. And then we've got that, that one like supernatural twist to it. You know, again, feels very Stephen King in that way where it's like, this is a, you know, a sort of what would you do if you were in this situation kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, even elements to a lesser extent or to a more abstracted sense, kind of like misery, where you're in like a single location. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of has a, a kind of Hitchcockian setup to it or like a an old Twilight Zone kind of kind of conceit. where it's, or, or like... A- Gerald's game or yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Twilight Zone very much like, you know, what if yeah. the ghosts of the past could help you save your future kind of thing. Right. It's it's like the the world's highest stakes escape room. Yeah, yeah. And it was fun putting the, the clues together with the kid and everything. Like, I mean, maybe to a certain degree that dampens the horror a little bit because it becomes a bit there's an adventure element to it. After that point, mm-hmm. um, not like it's the Goonies or anything, but well, it, it's you know he's finding it, clues, he's trying to figure it out, and so it it kind of takes you away from the visceral and puts you more in the in the analytical. Um, yeah, and, but and I don't also, think that that's a know, problem for for this type of story. With with a ghost story, also you know typically 
the ghosts are, at least at first, some kind of a sense of dread or or the ghosts are what's scary, you know, mm-hmm. and oftentimes they ghosts turn out to not be the threat. Um, but in this case, that is all brushed past because it's the ghosts are his allies. They're, they're like the only thing that might be able to save him. Right. And so I think that it's kind of an interesting twist on the ghost story as they're well. They're MacGuff ghosts. Uh, fuck you. Um, so I, I think that also was something that stood out as interesting to me. This isn't a ghost movie in a typical sense, because I, I'm not going to be ever, I'm not going to be scared by these ghosts. If anything, they're a source of relief. Right. And I think, hmm. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about my only real criticism with the movie. Okay. And I have not read the original short story, so I don't know if it plays this differently or how it shares the theoretical screen time. The the two supernatural strands of the movie, we have him in the basement with the ghosts giving clues. And then we have the sister who is a psychic. Apparently their mother, who is no longer alive, was also a psychic that she got from her. Um, she has a bit of the shine. And they don't really have that much to do with each other when it's all said and done. I think you could have taken away one or the other, depending on how you wanted that story to play out. More, more specifically, I think you could take away Psychic Sister, not as a character entirely, but just that element of it. And it wouldn't well, change the outcome of the story at all. I don't think that's necessarily i i mm, i'm gonna disagree with you on this i, I, I thought about this for a while so why why do they keep cutting to this like i thought about it more after the movie because i i while i was watching it i thought those two things would converge more like either she would start communicating with the ghosts or whatever and that doesn't happen i but I'm, I'm going to disagree with you on this. I, I think I actually the think... purpose of this, and you can tell me if you agree okay. or not. I think the purpose of her doing that, her uh, story purpose anyway, um, is to create a red herring effect. You know, to kind of like if we're, if we're thinking back to misery, right? Um, this would be like the Richard Farnsworth sheriff story where we expect – him to solve the whole deal before, you know, so that the uh, Paul Sheldon can get saved or whatever. Um, and it ends up becoming sort of a red herring or like, a, 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 you know, a great moment of ex- escalating tension when they take that away from us. But that this doesn't really do that either. It just is kind of there. I... So I'm going to disagree with you. I think, uh, A, I do think it does converge on the ending. I, I think those stories come together in a way that I found satisfying. Um, I do think she communicates with these ghosts. It's just in a different way than the, the boy. And, you know, maybe there's something about needing this black phone as a cipher to, like, literally hear them. Um, I also think it it speaks to their relationship. Uh, you know, I wonder if 
he has a little bit of this shine as well. And may, is that why he can hear the ghosts? Could any of the other kids hear the ghosts? You know, so to me, I, I think it does work. I, I think it connects them in a way that, that makes Finney different than all the other boys who've been taken. You know, he has this this person who loves him. And, and not that the other boys didn't have, you know, families and stuff, but uh, they're connected in such a way that I, I mean, without giving away the ending, I don't know. To, to me, that, that I, I felt like it made sense. I, I felt like that um, story paid off. Yeah, I, th- I think you might be onto something there that it hinted at that he has a bit of this psychic ability as well. And that's why he is more exceptional than the others who were taken. Because they make a point to show a couple of these kids, almost th- three or more of these kids were either like very hardcore bullies or fighters or people well, who can kick ass. Athletic. Yeah. One of them is very athletic. He's a baseball player. He can he can run. Yeah. You know, one of them knows fucking martial arts. Yeah. And one of them is, is yeah, kind of a berserker uh, a bully. And I love the yeah. flashback sequence with him when he when he's playing <laughs> pinball and he looks exactly like Roger Daltrey in the movie Tommy. Yeah, um. yeah. Uh, but but yes, yeah, so I you know the they're all very physical. Yeah, so it puts in your head like shit. If if the kid who knows kung fu couldn't get away, how the hell is this kid gonna get away? It, yeah, exactly. Um, and and we so, learn that Finney, you know, his connection to these ghosts. He he he's smart. He uh, he heeds the lessons well. Yeah, and he's able to communicate with them. I mean, I, yeah, I think that the, I wish if that had been the, if that's what they're trying to say with that, is that they, that him and his sister are connected in this way. I just wish that had been hinted at a little bit more, like in that first 40 or, or whatever it is, the first like 35 minutes or so before he's kidnapped, where maybe, I don't know, they share a dream or something. Um, just so that I- we, have you know that, I, I a little bit more of that context one of the things i really like about this movie is the mystery of it is is it doesn't it doesn't explain everything it doesn't explain a lot it, it mm-hmm. just gives you enough to sort of understand the situation but i think in a way that's interesting and not frustrating yeah you know like like we know um the grabber can maybe, you know, he can hear this phone as well sometimes. And, and there's something interesting about that. And they're never totally explicit on what's going on there. And I think that's cool. I think, I, I don't know. I didn't need the, the psychic connection to be overstated. Uh, and that's just my interpretation of what's going on. I, you know, I'm, I haven't read the story either, so I might not be right. Maybe that yeah, is more. That does more seem to but, be the case. That's the best. That's the best argument for why those two strands are running parallel to each other. I still don't know if it works great in a plot way, but it is more interesting in a story way. Yeah, I I don't know. I to me it 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 worked. Um, I don't know. I really liked this one. I really. I would say my biggest complaint if i if i'm gonna have a real criticism 
I just didn't think the movie was all that scary. Um, and, and it's not that type of a horror movie. Um, mm-hmm. And that's okay. Like, you know, as a couple little jumps, it, it, it definitely has a lot of tension. Um, yeah. And I'm fine with that. But I didn't. Yeah. I mean, Ethan Hawke is super creepy. Yeah, I think and, the, the performance is scary. The mask is scary. The You know, visually, the movie, uh, Derrickson, he brings a little bit of what he did in in uh, Sinister to this, where, the, mm-hmm. you know, we see that kind of grainy Super 8-looking kind of uh, footage every once in a while, like different cutaways and stuff and inserts. And yeah, yeah. He, it's very unsettling. He creates a real world out of, you know, this sort of, like, fall set small town suburb mm-hmm. um in the 70s and you know the period detail is really nice and it doesn't look like a movie um and it doesn't it, i mean it looks like it's stylized in the sense that it's you know atmospheric but it it doesn't feel like everyone's in costume like it, it everything yeah, yeah. is sort of dingy and lived in and you, you, there's a little bit more uh, I don't know, grit and sensory aspects well, there's just to a, it all. There's a weight to things. It, it feels yeah. very believable without feeling like, you know, like Stranger Things or like overly stylized to look like the 70s. It just... Right. It, it does just more, enough, I think. Um, yeah, it feels a little more authentic. Yeah. And I think, you know, for the most part, the performances are all there. Sometimes... The child acting is a little stiff, more so in scenes of um, direct back and forth dialogue. I notice that a little bit more where the, where the actors kind of feel like they're waiting for their turn to talk. But there's other scenes with the exact same actors where they're incredible. I mean, like, there's, you know, heartbreaking abuse sequences and stuff that are very hard to watch. Yeah, um, yeah. So maybe they're a tad inconsistent, but when it's good, it's really good. Yeah, and I think Ethan Hawke's performance, I think, is incredible and very understated. The, well, and you, I mean, you never. I don't think this is a spoiler. You never really even see his whole face. Like he, right. he has a mask on basically the entire time, and I don't know. He just again, they give you just enough information about this character that you're like. Oh wait, what the fuck? Um, mm-hmm. Like you want to know more, but you don't. And uh, I, I just think, I don't know. He, he is so captivating in this. Yeah, and you know he has to do all of that through this like strange plastic devil mask, which I think right. Is just well, weird. I mean, the look is is so out there anyway, and it, and the movie's already doing so much of the work for him yeah. that he was smart in keeping it understated and keeping it quiet and keeping it an interior rather than, you know, trying to be scary and wacky with it. And and then it would have just felt like overacting. It would have been like, campy. yeah, it would, have, it would have been a Jared Leto performance. Right. Yeah. I mean, if, 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 that, if he had been on the other side of that mask, it very easily could have been that. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah, exactly. He he underplays things in a way that it, it, it's just it's scarier movie, the way he does it. He he almost sort of approaches his his characterization like a child. 
yeah, very, uh, very good performance. And, yeah, and I think the scenes uh, with him, you know, the few scenes we have with him and and uh, the lead uh, are those are very tense and very scary. Um, I think if they were going to turn up the scare notch a little bit more, and like I said, they could have is uh, with the ghosts themselves. Like it, it pretty quickly understood that that they are not a problem. They're not a threat. There's one ghost, yeah. and it's it's of the pinball kid, who seems to be a bit more of a, a loud ghost, a poltergeist. You know, he mm-hmm. throws things. He's a little bit more on edge, and he's not as reliable in that sense as the other ones that he knew personally. And I kind of felt if we'd had a, a few more moments like that with the others, uh, where yeah, they're helping you, but eh, only in so far as they know what they're doing anyway. Yeah, and, yeah, and, I mean, there's some kind of creepy moments with them, but, again, like I said, it, it it's sort of an anti-ghost movie in that way, because it's the, they're, they're immediately helpful. You're, you know, yeah. there's not this mystery of what's going on with these ghosts. It's just like, oh, fuck, I hope these ghosts can save me. Yeah, I hope they, they come in clutch when it's necessary. And it, it does have an escape room quality to it where it's like, Oh, well you gotta pull this tile over here to find this clue and da, 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 da. And like I said, that it, it kind of becomes more analytical than visceral in those moments, but it's sort of fun to play along too. Like oh, I wouldn't absolutely. want them to, and, to not do that. And the way all, I think all the clues come together, I, I, I think is really satisfying. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, uh, that's part of the experience is it isn't just about like, you know, making it super grim and super dark and super scary. I think there's enough of that to, you know, confidently qualify this as a horror film. Oh but, yeah, for sure. Um, but it's also about him overcoming this thing and, and, you know, fighting for himself and yeah, well, I mean, all that stuff you know, is, you know, built into the characterizations and, and into sure. the uh, the payoff, yeah, uh, yeah. I I really I really liked this movie. I I thought it was a creepy, stylized horror. Like this is this is exactly up my alley um, mm-hmm. for the you know generally the type of horror I like. So I I'm gonna give this an A minus. I'm gonna give it a B. I think it's very very good, and it's okay. nice to see Derrickson kind of going back and doing this type of stuff. Um, I mean, you know, Dr. Strange is, is, is good and I'm glad he, he made his, he made his money. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is, well, he, he, he has he's such a good, uh, visual eye for horror. And I think he's one of the, the, you know, uh, one of the horror directors right now who really knows how to pace something. Well, uh, mm-hmm. And he also, because both this and Sinister are highly conceptual. Yeah. And it's very easy to lean on the concept as gimmick mm-hmm. and don't pay it off either as a story or as a means for scares. And he's able to do both. Yeah. Did he didn't do Sinister 2, did he? No, I don't believe so. Yeah, and, and I think you can feel that. Because um, I, I watched Sinister 
surprisingly really liked it. I was not expecting to. So much so that I went and watched uh, Sinister 2 pretty quickly. And you can tell that it's not him because... It just it just doesn't have the same vibe. Like it literally just comes down to that. Like it just it, he's the they're not able to sort of play with the the high concept stuff in a way that's as believable. And uh, you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. um, he just he, I think he's has a way of kind of grounding stuff uh, mm-hmm. in and making it work. And I think I think he has an eye also for creating like iconic horror villains in a way that nobody really tries to do anymore. I, yeah, mean, I mean, you have Pennywise with it, but that was like obviously a thing that's been there for a while. Um, yeah, I mean, both with Bagul uh, from Sinister <laughs> and with uh, the Grabber, they both have iconic looks. Yeah, yeah, I I love the way the grabber looks. It's so strange mm-hmm. and bizarre, but in a way that you like, you immediately kind of know what's going on with this character. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I think the it, the character design I think is like instantly iconic. Yeah, and, and again, not easy to do. It would be really easy to to have that in the movie. A movie like this that's going for you know, sort of a serious, uh, realistic tone and then have that character look like he walks right out of the spirit of Halloween store yeah. and ruin all that. And it doesn't. Totally. So, yeah, we recommend The Black Phone if you didn't happen to catch it. But I hear it's actually doing pretty well for the... I, I mean, you know, these movies tend to be lower budget in from Bloomhouse. They know how to sort of market these things. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's already doubled uh, or tripled its budget. Yeah, and I also think, um, you know, this is a this is a good one for if you're because I, I know a lot of people that are sort of horror adjacent, like mm. they like or they like the genre trappings of horror. They just don't like to be scared. Right. Um, so I think this is a great option for for that. Like you know, I don't think it's going to give you nightmares. Um, it, it might be triggering, um, for sure, but really like this one. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's talk now about the streaming homework, the two Jakes from 1990. Uh, we watched this on HBO max. What mm-hmm. happens in this movie? Yeah. I kind of mad that you're making me set this one up. Okay, so this is a sequel to the 70s classic uh, Chinatown. This takes place, you know, many years after Jake Giddies is, you know, a private detective who at this point is mostly making his money catching people in infidelity as private detectives do. He's hired by Jake Berman, the other Jake, uh, played by Harvey Keitel. He suspects his wife is having an affair. Uh, When it is revealed to him, he pulls out a gun, seemingly out of nowhere, and shoots the man who is having an affair, which is his old business partner. And then as the case develops, the question is put into... Jake Giddy Giddis, Jack Nicholson, 
uh, his mind as to, you know, whether or not this was a, a murder of passion or if this was all a setup and all just an excuse for Jake number two to murder his business partner to get land rights. And then through this investigation, he is uh, reminded of details from the events of Chinatown um, that sort of send him back into this case from his past. Yes. Whereas in the first film, the uh, the major resource that's uh, uh, being used as the film's MacGuffin is the city's water supply, Los Angeles water supply. In this film, they're talking a lot more about these underground oil reservoirs. Yeah. Which is kind of an interesting, you know, development. I, I think Robert Town, who wrote both of these, probably did that on purpose, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there's some interesting stuff with that um, and sort of how that develops and plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, and this film but, is directed uh, so by the- Jack Nicholson instead of Roman Polanski. Uh, for reasons who at, that, at this point had fled the country. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So Jack Nicholson directing and starring in the two Jakes. Uh, and it shows, I think a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah. I thought this movie was kind of a snooze fest. There's some moments of interest, but a lot of conversations, and a lot of not super interesting conversations. This, I think this movie's kind of visually pretty blah. Uh, and I don't know. It just, to me, it, there's not really any huge sense of tension. Um, like we know that if he doesn't like produce this tape, he's gonna, get subpoenaed or sued or whatever, or blah, blah, blah. And then certain parties are more interested in this tape and they might, they, there's an implication of a death threat, but I don't know. Everything is just kind of played at the same level to me. Uh, uh, and I just think this movie's kind of boring. I agree. Um, I do think it looks good. I don't have a problem with the, with the cinematography, I think it's actually one of the standouts of the movie, shot by uh, uh, Vilmo Sigmund, who also did a lot of stuff for Spielberg and, and I mean, uh, De Palma and, <clears throat> and Altman and all of those guys. Uh, there's, there's, all- not pro- there's not problems with the way things are framed, mm-hmm. but when we're stuck with these kind of, you know, these, again, these long conversations... It you know for the most part the camera's stuck at a two shot, and it it, it just doesn't do anything much visually, and uh, maybe that's more of an editing issue. Um, there's some, you know, pretty shots. There, it's not, it's not totally visually uninteresting. It's just, it it sort of feels like the camera gets stuck. You know, like it'll have like a great establishing shot or an interesting sort of transition. 
And then we're just sort of stuck in this not super dynamic scene for a while. Yeah, well, I, I think that's more the issue is that it uh, feels more like the movie gets stuck rather than the uh, the the camera. Um, I think the camera is photographing what's there, but oftentimes what's there is not that interesting. Um, yeah. And, you know, this is a private eye kind of story and there's lots of different ways to sort of approach film noir. And although Chinatown is a private eye, uh, Philip Marlowe kind of story as well. Um, you know, with sort of a Chandler esque web of conspiracy type thing. Um, that movie had a better way of holding the tension. And, of course, Jack Nicholson, I think, you know, Jack Nicholson in the 70s and Jack Nicholson here in 1990. I mean, Jack Nicholson is always Jack Nicholson, but there's kind of a difference, I think, in the way he approaches the character. And maybe it's because he was directing, so he wasn't, you know, he was directing himself this time around as opposed to having probably more suggestions and notes and stuff. And, you know, when you see him in Chinatown, he seems genuinely kind of like a sleazebag, but also, you know, sort of hungry and and anxious. And the, he's a, more reactive to what's happening in the movie. Whereas here, he just, like everything, it's, it's just a little it sort of feels like he's floating from scene to scene. And yeah. He's just kind of a cipher to kind of experience the story through. And it's, he's and, and no, I, I agree with you completely. And I think because of that, the character to me seems way more sleazy. I'm like, was kind of grossed out by him in this, you know, in a way that, that the, you know, and it's been a while since I've seen Chinatown, but mm-hmm. I feel like that movie just carries you along better. And to the point, you know, where the ending is, is pretty shocking. And in this, it just, like I said, it just, he sort of feels like he's floating from scene to scene. And I just kind of don't really care what happens. Yeah. I mean, I, it, there's, there's not enough breadcrumbs to follow uh you know his journey through all of these red herrings and stuff to mm-hmm. keep me interested and there's a few good scenes along the way that pop up and I'm like okay here's at least like a you know a buoy to hold on to until I have to swim to the next one yeah um but that's kind of what it felt like the movie felt a little bit like work you know, there's whenever there's a sequence where something is a little bit more dynamic and something is happening, um, uh, I'm reminded of how good Chinatown was, but also how, you know, I'm reminded of how bit of a wasted opportunity this movie was. I don't think it's altogether bad. It's just very average. And I wonder if by this time, if, I don't know, I... I had a hard time thinking of a, a really compelling period noir in this kind of style post Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Was that movie yeah. like the ultimate 
uh, postmodern expression of the period noir. Well, like, was that was that sort of the final word on this? And because by the by the time you get into the nineties, the genre has sort of morphed into more like the Michael Mann. You know, Heat and Thief and Collateral and like the, you know, that kind of, or Copland, we talked about recently. Um, like that kind of like, uh, neo noir, um, style or even something crazier, like what the Coens were doing with the genre or what David Lynch was doing with the genre. When you look at this movie in comparison, it just, it's like so traditional, it feels a little dusty. Yeah, yeah. I think the only the only example I can think of a, a decent sort of movie in this vein after uh, is um, L.A. Confidential. I sure, think. yeah, but that's like a, I think it's a bit more of a. I, um, I think it does. I think it plays kind of the right notes. Um, it's a little and, bit more playful. It's a. It's a little. It's, it's more fun, and there's there's also. It's more of a um, ensemble piece, so there's. It's not just playing on like one protagonist's journey. There's kind of a That's lot true, going on. I, I think it's enough in the same vein. Um, yeah, uh, but yeah, I think for the most part, I I think you might be right. I think because uh, I was going to say, uh, you know, Sin City, if that counts, but. That's you know no that I think that's that's too stylized I think that's right because that at that point is is more it's able to sort of more play off of what the graphic novel did that was really cool which obviously was referencing this kind of stuff yeah um uh but uh, to me it's that you know that comic book stylization is so and even even in that there's some stuff that's sort of you know, so over the top. And so, uh, that it almost, you know, when it's translated into movie, almost feels a little parody ish. Um, sure. Yeah. There is know, something like, more postmodern about it in a, in, yeah. in a way that like who framed or Dick Tracy did. Um, yeah. Whereas this movie, and I'm not saying this movie needed to be like a cartoon or anything. And I think, I think you, there's a way you could do this movie better. Um, I, it's just, uh, I don't know. It feels a little overwritten. It's definitely overlong. It's, it's like two, almost two and a half hours. I it didn't have to be. To me, this movie just feels like it's trying too hard. Like it, it's just, yeah. like, I don't know. It just, it, it means just... well. I mean, it's, it, it's coming out. It's trying to like go for that prestige thing, but in a way it feels even campier sometimes than something like a Dick Tracy, which knows what yeah. it is more because it's, it, it's so earnest and, and yeah, it's also at sometimes it's like, well, you're not always pulling it off. I, 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 hear, I don't know. It might sound like I'm shitting on it more. I didn't hate it. I just, like you said, I think it's, it's just sort of aggressively average. It's, it's just sort of, yeah, I don't, I don't really see any reason to watch this movie. Uh, right. Even if you're a fan of Chinatown, I'm like, just watch Chinatown. Like, I don't think you're really going to get. And that's the thing. If Chinatown hadn't 
already done this, you know, brilliantly in yeah. whatever it was, 1975, 76? 74. 74. 74, yeah. So if, if Chinatown hadn't already done that, you know, perfectly in 1974, then this movie might have felt a little less baggy and, and weighted by its own yeah. self sense of importance. Well, it's also Chinatown, just as a story, has some twists and things that are just inherently more dynamic and more um, interesting than than this movie. You know, it's yeah. It's There's something a little bit as, more brooding and moody and gothic about Chinatown as opposed to this movie, which has a little bit of that, but a lot of it is, is uh, it just kind of feels by the numbers. That's what I'm saying. Like by this well, and, time, and we've just kind of seen this type of thing. And it's also like, I, I get that it, this character is like a, a, you know, is like a book series or whatever. Um, but Chinatown has sort of a perfect in, ending, right? You know, it, that's yeah. just what it is. And, you know, it, it sums it up so well that it's like, do we need a sequel to that? Do we need to see what happens to this character 15 years down the line? Like, not really. Like, I, I the ending is so, of Chinatown is so, you know, heartbreaking and final that it, it just, it almost feels like a betrayal to try to follow that up. Yeah, and I'm I'm of two minds because I think the stuff that connects back to Chinatown is some of the better scenes as far as acting goes. Absolutely. Um, but I'm also like a little more annoyed that they did that. Like I'm uh, like I I I think I'd prefer it if the story just stood on its own and didn't yeah. didn't have to lean on what we already know about the first film. Um, I will say, I think Harvey, Harvey Keitel's great in this. Uh, for yeah, as, as mean, whatever as as Jack Nicholson is, and he's not bad. He's just he's just Jack Nicholson. Um, mm -hmm. Here, I think Harvey Keitel. This is like at the period of like when Harvey Keitel was really having a comeback. This Reservoir Dogs, uh, the Piano, a Bad Lieutenant. Um, this was the period where he was like either crying or showing his wee wee in every movie or both. <laughs> um, and I think he was actually probably more famous in the first half of the nineties than he was even in the seventies. But uh, he, and there's a few sequences here where he's really going for it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that's the thing is like, I'm like starved for these story moments or these character moments because the movie is so, plot heavy that I'm, and yeah. this is my issue with the private eye style noir in general. Like when it comes to noirs, you know, you either have this, the, like the private detective story where if either it's explicitly a private detective or well, somebody who might as well be one, um, who's trying well, to put I, together I think, a mystery or you have well, the other style, exactly. which is more like everyday Joe gets in over his head and, I tend to like that those stories more in noir. Well, so I, I you know, that's I think that's sort of a problem with the private detective uh, genre is yeah. is 
you know, most of the time, uh, you know, these were kind of based off of like, you know, these this paperback sort of paperback novels. fiction. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the time, the characters were just sort of a vessel for the mystery, you know. So right. as a reader, you're sort of trying to put these pieces together and figure it out along with them. In a movie, sometimes you can miss details uh, or uh, the movie misses details or, you know, it, it just I think it's a little harder to put that mystery at the forefront. Uh, in a movie, I feel like you want to you want to be with the characters more. Um, yeah. And, and so I just I don't know if it always necessarily works. I, I agree with you, I think. Um, the more sort of character-driven stuff is usually more interesting. Yeah, those are the ones, those are the types of noirs I tend to gravitate towards is the stuff where, like, more of the, the double indemnity uh, strand of the genre rather than the uh, the Big Sleep or Maltese Falcon strand. But, you know, whatever. It's... I- it's I, it's not essential viewing, but if you're super super curious and you got some time to watch it, it's fine. I I just was a little bored by most of it. Yeah, same. I exactly. I was just like, if the if this is a genre you love, uh, and you know, I like noir just as much as the next guy, but uh, I would say this is non-essential viewing. This is just. I don't know. There's I, a reason why people don't talk about this movie to the point where a lot of people yeah. don't even know what happened. Yeah. At this point, like everyone, for the most part, if you know enough about movies, you eventually at least hear of Chinatown, but it might be a, a little bit longer before you hear about the two Jakes. Yeah. Uh, I also was wondering if this was why you wanted to play the title game. Cause two Jakes, not a great name. Oh, I think it's fine. Okay, Actually, I I, I like liked it. it more once I knew why it was called that. I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's yeah, it's kind of yeah. Like it, it's very Raymond Chandlery. Um, I, I guess I don't have I don't have a problem with the title. It's and I I actually when it comes to sequels, um, I prefer titles that have the balls not to use anything. Uh, indicating the f- the first film in the franchise, like I love when uh, a sequel, you know, like you know something like um, "Romancing the Stone" and "Jewel of the Nile." I love when a movie series uh, is not afraid to do that. Like uh, the last Saw sequel that came out was just called "Spiral." Probably fucking did terrible because of that title. If it had been called Saw 101, comma, Spiral. But Wasn't it also supposed to be, like, kind of a reboot? I don't know. I don't know. Um, Chris Maybe Rock not, was in it. It was called Spiral. But I still was like, you know what? That's balls. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but that movie technically was called, wasn't it called Spiral? And then they didn't. Was this one that I I think they might have changed it later? So I think they started calling it like from the book of Saw, 
Spiral or yeah. Spiral from the Book of Saw or something like that. So I, I think that uh, might have been kind of a live, die, repeat situation going on there. Yeah, I mean, there, I, I think Spiral was like the official title, but um, yeah, there might have been like a, a subtitle on that. Okay, for the next episode, the streaming homework we are going to do uh, from Tubi is the 1984 werewolf movie The Company of Wolves. Uh, it's directed by Neil Jordan, who would later go on to do uh, The Crying Game and Interview with the Vampire, among a lot of other movies. This is one of his earlier films. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, werewolf movie should be fun. Yeah, I'm excited. And if anybody has anything to say about anything we've talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. We will read your responses on the air. And I'm always open to people providing us with content, so I don't have to figure that out myself. You can also just uh, follow us on our social media at mcguffinpod on Twitter and Instagram and leave comments under anything we post there. We post episodes when they go up. Uh, we are on still on Facebook at facebook.com slash MacGuffinPod. Pretty much only just post new episodes at this point. Um, but if you're still on there, go ahead and give us a like. Uh, give us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review. Very helpful. If you leave those on iTunes or Spotify, uh, Pocket Cast, Player.fm, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast app you use um, more reviews pushes it up the algorithm helps us get noticed in our uh, film and television category uh, if you want to read the reviews I write for the Idaho State Journal you can do so by going to Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment and you'll see the reviews amongst the other articles that are written for that section and you can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. And be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. I also have an art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. And that is the episode. Forget it, Jake. It's the two Jakes. Bye.